I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. After graduating from Yale University with a degree in history, James Click began his career as a tech consultant in Silicon Valley. The North Carolina native felt a pull towards the baseball world, but after failing to land an internship with a major league club, Click began writing for Baseball Prospectus. He eventually joined the Tampa Bay Devil Rays in 2006 as a coordinator in the Baseball Operations Department. Promoted later to Director of Baseball Research and Development, Click was essentially a one-man show in that area for the Rays, playing a key role in the front office as Tampa Bay reached its first and only World Series in 2008. I sat down with Click to discuss what he learned from Andrew Friedman, the evolution of analytics in baseball, the arbitration process, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Ray's Vice President of Baseball Operations, James Click. James, you were raised in Durham, North Carolina, which most people associate with basketball, not baseball. Uh, what was your early sports passion? Uh, a lot of them. Uh, I uh, grew up uh, down the road from where you could go to Tommy Amaker's basketball camp in the summers, so I did that and was very bad at it. I played a lot of Little League growing up. I did that. I was very bad at it. I <laughs> uh, did a lot of swimming growing up. Did that and was okay. So it was it was all of them. Um, we, we obviously... Went to basketball games all the time. My neighbor had tickets to, to Duke, uh, and he would lend them to us when they were playing somebody, you know, that they, he didn't want to see. We grew up in the old uh, the old Durham Bulls park that they filmed Bull Durham in. Uh, my dad asked about being extras, but they were filming it at night in December, so we didn't end up going. But that's where I uh, that's where I grew up watching the game, learning the game. Could have seen Crash Davis play. That would have been awesome. It it really would have been. Uh, if you actually go back and watch the movie, you can see their breath. Uh, because they were filming it in winter. Uh, it's the only time they could get the park. So it would have been fun to go out there. But, you know, my, my dad prioritized good night's sleep. Personal opinion, best baseball movie there is. But that's a, that's an editorial comment there. Yep. Uh, what was your favorite big league baseball team growing up? I didn't really have one, if it's if that's possible. Uh, the first glove I got had Doc Gooden's signature in the mitt. Uh, so then I was a Mets fan for a little bit. And then... The Braves got good, and we had their single-A team, so everybody became Braves fans. We saw that whole crew of guys come through when we were growing up. There's Chipper Jones for about a week, uh, you know, Mark Lemke, Blauser, Steve Avery, like this, all those guys came through. We got to see them all go up to the majors, Klesko. So that, that kind of became the team for a little bit, but in Durham, you're five hours from Atlanta, you're five hours from Baltimore. Those were the two closest big league teams, and... For the most part, it wasn't really a big factor growing up. You got your bachelor's degree in history from Yale. Again, not a major most people associate with a a future career in sports. What did you think you wanted to do when you graduated with a history degree? That's a really good question. I knew I wanted to get in sports somehow. Uh, I graduated about two years before Moneyball came out, so it was a little bit more difficult to get into sports at that time. Uh, I ended up doing some tech work out in Silicon Valley, uh, database construction, things like that, and started sending letters to all 30 teams because at some point along the way I decided really wanted to do baseball. Um, I harbored the dream of being on ESPN for a little bit. Uh, Dan Patrick and Kenny Mayne were, were celebrities and all of my friends, like I'm sure everybody else, thought we were just as funny as those guys. But Ultimately, really wanted to do the competitive aspect. Had always loved baseball growing up, and so it was uh, it was natural to to try to pursue that in a in a front office role. Uh, I sent letters to all thirty teams. I got letters back from almost all of them saying thanks, but no thanks. 
I keep those letters in a folder in my office just to remind myself of how hard it can be to get into this game. But sometime in, in college, shortly after college, it became pretty obvious what I wanted to do. Now, at the time, you mentioned you graduated two years before Moneyball came out. Baseball executives were not the celebrities they are now, for lack of a better word. Were there baseball executives that you admired from afar that you know stood out to you as, well? Wow, those guys are really good at their jobs? Yeah, for, for the most part, it was the guys who had come from similar backgrounds. So Theo wasn't the GM yet. Um, Paul DePodesta uh, was out in Oakland. And so you know, I, I knew that there were people who had come from similar schools and gone on into baseball and to try to get in touch with them, but, but also you know, understand that they get, just like we all get, a lot of, a lot of letters from a lot of people who want to get into this game. So um, there wasn't as much to admire about what they were actually doing in the job as much as admiring their path and you know, how they had gone from, from a similar place to, uh, in undergrad to, to a job in baseball. You know, beyond that, I, I think I appreciated Branch Rickey, obviously, as a, you know, a key figure in the game. And I think I appreciated what he did and, and what he brought to the game and what he changed and the, the mindset of always wanting to push and do something different and not being beholden to the status quo. Um, but I don't know if I admired him as a baseball executive as much as just a, a thinker in a mind. So you tried to land an internship or, or something with all 30 teams, got all these letters back, and eventually you, you end up joining Baseball Prospectus as a writer. Uh, did writing come easy to you? Did you enjoy the writing? Was that something you had considered as maybe a, if I can't get into the game in a front office, this is a way to at least be around the game? And did you think about the writing as a potential long-term career? I, I did. Uh I first got that job by literally bothering uh, Gary Huckabee, who is one of the founders of Baseball Prospectus, into letting me do database entry and, and data entry uh, on nights and weekends for free. So it wasn't glamorous, but they let me write on the side. Uh, and I would submit articles, and they would all get rejected. Um, but eventually a couple of them broke through. And I, I don't know if I'm a good writer. I try to tell a story every time. I think it's a lot harder than people think it is. Um, but I thought about it. I mean, it's it's an, it's an exciting thing. You get to interact with a lot of people. You get to get your name out there. You get to think about interesting things. And for the most part, Baseball Prospectus just gave me carte blanche to go do whatever I wanted and, and think about whatever I wanted. And that kind of freedom, as well as the intellectual challenge of those people, was very appealing. And when I got the job with the Devil Rays at the time... It was tough to leave, even though I had known that the goal was all the way long to get a job with a team. It was, it was tough to leave that, that intellectual environment and perspective. Well, in preparing for this interview, I, I read a lot of your stuff, and you were a good writer. You, interesting stuff. Obviously, you wrote a lot of statistical an, uh, analytic-type stories. When we all first start watching baseball as kids, you're rooting for your favorite team, your favorite player, Doc Gooden, whoever it may be. Uh, at what point did advanced metrics and qualitative and, uh, and analytics sort of become an interest for you? I'd always been very good at math through high school, uh, and though I didn't major in it in college, I, I took my fair share of classes. Um, when it comes to other things, uh, econometrics, stock market, things like that, a, a lot of the techniques that we use and a lot of the problems that we're solving are very similar. But for me, my eyes just completely glaze over when it's something other than baseball. But when it's baseball players, it's just, it's exciting, it's fun. You're trying to figure out the best way to, to put your roster together. So I don't know if I can point to a particular time when it happened, but you know, cutting your teeth at Prospectus was was a great great time to to really get engaged on that kind of stuff. And, and you know, it's going to sound incredibly nerdy to say get excited by some math equations, but 
you know, Keith Woolner, who's now with the Indians, was a guy that I just tried to learn as much from as possible, and that was definitely, you know, the time when it came about. You joined the Devil Rays organization. I still have trouble saying it. I got one of those fine letters from, from Matt at the time for writing Devil Rays after they turned into the Rays, so been careful about that. we got to keep our payroll up however we can. <laughs> so you joined the Devil Rays organization in 2006 as a coordinator of baseball operations. How did that job finally come about for you after all those thanks but no thanks letters? It depends on who you ask. Um, I was I was writing at Prospectus at the time. Uh, if you ask Andrew, he said that he read some of my work and um, thought that my perspective, the way that I was thinking, my thought process was something that he was very interested in bringing on board. Alternatively, I've also heard that he went to Chaim uh, at the time and said, we need somebody to help us build a database. Uh, do you know anybody? Chaim and I had interned, interned together at Prospectus, and he knew that part of my job there was database maintenance, data, data entry, and things like that. And the initial email I got was from Chaim saying, can you build us a database? And I said, yes. And he said, great. Here's Andrew. Please talk to Andrew. <laughs> so your initial duties are the database. You've said when you first joined the organization, there was no IT department, uh, just some guy who came in twice a week to help out. There was no company email. Uh, how quickly did it take for things to sort of modernize into the 21st century? I still don't know that we've fully modernized into the 20th century. Uh, I'll let you know when we get there. Um, Not even the 20th century. Okay. Yeah, you know, we're moving along 100 years at a time. Um Jeez. I mean, one of the first things that we did when I got here was to hire a programmer, a front office, or sorry, a front end guy. Um, Brian Plexico is our, our senior director or director of baseball systems. Um, and he was my first hire when I got to the Rays. Uh, at that point, I kept working on the back end on the database and he started working on our, our system that we have that, that has all of our information. So um, it's, it's a constant struggle. We have a much larger staff right now. Uh, that attends to all this kind of stuff, as every team does. It's just there's so much information coming in. Everybody wants the information, players, coaches, front office people. It's a never-ending battle to try to get everything up there that we want to get up there. Uh, we've definitely made some progress, but I keep looking at that to-do list and thinking that you know we're not quite there yet. If my timeline is right, and I might be off on one of them, but uh, I am... Josh Boyd and Keith Law had all made the jump from baseball writing into front office jobs. When you first went to write for Baseball Prospectus, was that something in your head that this could lead to an opportunity like that? Yeah, very much. Uh, the, the goal, again, was to, to try to catch on with the team and actually ply my ideas with the team and, and, and really try them out. Um, you know, no disrespect to everybody who writes about it. Writing about it is one thing. Having an opinion from, from afar is one thing, but actually enacting it and putting it in action and risking, in some sense, your careers in a lot of ways uh, on, on these ideas that you've come up with is, is, a, is a different exercise. Um, that, that was always the goal. In 05, when Andrew first contacted me about consulting for the Rays on the side, I had set some goals for myself, one of which uh, was just to get in regular contact with a few teams, develop some contacts out there, reach out to people. Um, it turns out that I developed contact with one team and then none of the others. Um, it worked out in, in the end. But again, yeah, the, the goal was always to, to catch on with the team and see if we could really do this uh, as opposed to just, you know, talking about it on the sidelines. So from coordinator of baseball operations, you're a promoter to director of baseball research and development, then director of baseball operations. Uh, when you first joined the Rays, as we mentioned, you were kind of a one-man department. How daunting of a task 
is it to try to build something from scratch in an age where some teams are far more advanced than that? Some teams are still not doing stuff like that at all. It, it's a double-edged sword. It's it's really exciting. It's it, You have a completely blank slate. You can go any which way you want, which means that you can go the right way or you can go any of a thousand wrong ways. Um, we've got such a tremendous group right now. We've got so much momentum and there's so much work that is behind us that if we wanted to make a dramatic change right now, it's really difficult. It's hard to turn an aircraft carrier or whatever you know kind of ship that you think that we're on. Um, so there, there's positives and negatives to both. Um, that said, we've had some people leave here and go to other teams and immediately call back and say, can you look this thing up for me? Or I can't believe that they don't have anything. Uh, you know, from that perspective, <laughs> I'm really happy with what we have. Um, but the, the appeal of a fresh start is, is always there. What was it like your third season being a part of that 2008 run to the World Series? Any, any memory or two that stand out for you? Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, do the second part of the podcast on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to put into words. Um, I tried to appreciate it as much as I possibly could. And we were all fresh into baseball. We'd been in for two, three years, and I think we thought it was going to be like that all the time. I think we thought we'd had to figure it out. To some extent, I mean, you're always, you're always humble. You, you never think that you're going to do that every year. I actually bought a house the next year, and I remember them asking about a, a bonus that we got after the World Series, and the mortgage agent said, can you expect this bonus every year? And I was like, I don't think so, but <laughs> I'm going to try. Um, we tried to appreciate it. The the people around here who've been here since the beginning, R.J. Harrison, Mitch Lukovics, they, they were tremendous with us young kids at the time trying to trying to tell us to, to appreciate it and that this this is a special thing. And looking back on it now, yeah, I know it's a special thing. Um, there's tremendous memories of, of the Game 5 getting wiped out two days in Delaware. There's, you know, the series against the Red Sox. S- some of it I have crystal clear memories of. Some of it I go back and I watch the video and I don't remember how it possibly happened. But that's the good, that's the good part of it. It's a good part of having videos that you can just go back and watch it again, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Andrew Friedman before. You worked for him for several years. What did you learn most working for Andrew? Oh, man. Um, I'm trying to think what I could say that's not going to inflate his ego. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there's no shortage, shortage of things that we all learn from Andrew. A- Andrew is a tremendous communicator. He is imminently at ease in any situation. I was amazed by the fact that he would engage with everybody upstairs, whether it's scouts, whether it's player development, whether it's R&D people, and then go downstairs and engage with the players, and then come back and engage with the ownership group. And he would talk finance, and he would talk baseball, and he would talk analytics, and he was just completely at ease in in every situation, a tremendous communicator. It's something that, that I've tried to emulate uh, he does a really good job of, of keeping the work environment very loose, but at the same time, nobody's going to outwork Andrew. Uh, those first couple of years, especially before we had kids, before we had families, it was out of a Wall Street movie. We, w- we would get to work in the morning. We would work all day. We'd go to the game. After the game, you'd probably have a couple beers. you go to sleep at 2, 3 in the morning, and you get up in the morning and do it all over again. I don't know if he's still doing that. I hope he's not. I know that we've eased off a little bit here as we've gotten wives and kids and a few more staff members to pick this up for us. But 
work ethic and communication, I think, are the two big things. You were promoted into your current role of vice president of baseball operations two years after Andrew left, uh, the end of the 2016 season. Your bio in the media guide says that you were involved in all aspects of the baseball operations department with a focus on baseball research and development, baseball systems, clubhouse operations, and departmental logistics. You also assist with player evaluation, roster configuration and deployment, contract negotiation, and staff management. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, how do you how do you feel that you're able to keep sort of up with everything, all those things I just mentioned, and feel like you're adequately up to speed on everything going on? Yeah, we're working with our, our performance science group uh, to develop a drug that allows us not to sleep and <laughs> actually work 24, 25, 26 hours a day. Sure, 26 uh, hours a day. Yeah, we're, uh, we're working on it. Stu mentioned that at the winter meetings, I think. I think Chairman Mao, I've heard, actually uh, worked on a 27-hour day and made everybody uh, on that schedule for some reason. Uh, we're not trying to do that. Um, we, we have a, a large operation here, as everybody does. The, the role of general manager has expanded exponentially over the past 10 years since, since I've been in baseball. I don't know how anybody did it, just one person. Um, Haim and Eric obviously take on a huge amount of the load, but we all have to, to pick it up. Um, in, in my role with them, I'm yeah, I'm involved in almost everything that goes on. And the three of us divvy up a lot of the departments. I... Primarily, as you point out, oversee R&D, uh, performance science, um, baseball systems, all of these kind of things. Other guys will have specializations in other areas. Heim came up through player development, so he remains closely engaged in there. Um, Eric has been involved with the amateur draft for a long time. And so we try to make sure that the leadership of the Rays organization has to communicate across all of them. Um, no one of us can, can keep track of everything that's going on. So we all have to communicate. Um, it goes back to what we were talking about with Andrew. Just the communication is the is the key on that. Of all of those things I just mentioned, what's your favorite your favorite part of your job? That is a good question. Um, That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, winning is the favorite part of the job. Sure. If I can't say winning, it's the moments where I. feel feel like we've found something where I feel like we've we've uncovered something pulled up a rock and found something and that happens in every aspect of baseball operations it comes from all over the place it comes from conversations at affiliates it comes from conversations in the draft room it comes from the R&D guys you know and, and I don't think people will understand like how much of a gray area there is among all these groups with us making sure that they interact with each other has been, in my experience, the way that people really come up with the good ideas. A lot of times when we disagree about something is when we learn the most. And so being there when somebody from amateur scouting is having a conversation with somebody from R&D and they've both researched something for, you know, in their own way, years. And they come together and they realize that it's telling them something that neither of them realized before. That's, that's the aspect of the job that I like the most, other than the winning prefacing the next question by saying that you can't answer losing what's the <laughs> toughest part of the job it depends on the time of the year you know in spring training when you've just gotten through arbitration i'll always say arbitration it's a process that's there it's there for a reason but it is by and large the only time that we have to sit on the other side of the table from our players we don't like it we'll go through with it we try to be as fair and objective as we possibly can and I think by and large that served us well 
But at the same time, it's never a comfortable position to have to sit there and talk to a player or an agent and explain why you don't think they're as good as they think that they are and that you think that a lower salary is more appropriate than the higher salary. We're all trying to win. We're all trying to succeed. We want to win together. But that's a part of the business that, that pits us against each other in, in some sense. And yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not ideal. That segues really well into my next question, which is your involvement with the arbitration process. A lot of clubs, the majority of them, have now taken the file and trial approach to it. How has that changed the process for front offices? Well, I'm glad that you wanted to ask me about the thing I don't like the most about my job and then want to talk about that some more. I had that written down before I knew it was going to be your answer, at least favorite. You just made the segue easy. All right. I'll I'll throw the softball out there. Um, Yes, we started doing file and trial when Andrew came in. Um, By and large, I think that it does a good job of keeping both sides grounded in reality. Um, You can't create an artificial midpoint. And I don't want to get too far down in the weeds on on this kind of stuff. Um, Andrew liked to say that, and I experienced this personally, where you would lay out to an agent uh, at the beginning of an arbitration negotiation that we are filed a trial, 1 o'clock on Friday, negotiations cease, and occasionally you would have an agent who would let you know exactly how he felt about that. And Andrew liked to say that the reason that he knew that it was a good strategy for the teams was because the agents hated it so much. Um, Fair enough. So I, I, I probably didn't answer your question there exactly, but... Um, well, I feel like deadlines in general force your hand one way or another, right? The trade deadline at... at you know, four o'clock on July 31st, either you've made the trade or you haven't. That's when you have to make that, you know, sort of lay it on the table and it's either going to happen or not. It probably in this case also serves the same purpose, right? Yeah, it's human nature and it's a frustrating part of human nature. We all fall prey to it. I'm not saying that we're immune to it, but yes, having a deadline that's enforced by somebody else will ultimately force somebody to let you know like what the bottom line is, what, what, what their best and final is. And I know that we have a reputation out there of not revealing our best and final in arbitration until I don't know whether it's 1230 or 1235, but um, you know, that's, that's an unfortunate part of, of human nature, but we, we deal with it. All right, let's get into the stuff you do like talking about, numbers. Uh, we've seen the devaluation of stats, wins, batting average, RBI in recent years. Those used to be the numbers that people paid the most attention to. It was on the back of the baseball card, etc. When did you first begin to realize that some of the numbers that we've been using for years and years and years uh, and that people really valued in arbitration and free agency and whatever were as flawed as they seemed to be? I played fantasy baseball in college and started to try to develop my own metrics to predict who was going to be good and bad. Uh, I don't want to say how I did that or what they came up with because they are appallingly <laughs> bad at it. But it doesn't take too long of, of digging into the numbers in that, in that way to realize that a lot of them are not necessarily as predictive as you think that they are and in a lot of ways not as informative as you think they are and descriptive as you think they are. Um, I think it originally started with somebody explaining to me that runs created is you know runs plus RBIs minus home runs because you don't want to double count home runs. Um, it's definitely not where it ended, but fantasy baseball and trying to win fantasy baseball and doing it on my own and then going to research Bill James, going to research Prospectus, going to research everybody else who was out there, that's, that's where it started. How much of your job involves dealing with coaching staff and players 
and trying to get them to either, in players' cases, maybe buy in to some of the analytics, and in coaches' situation, maybe explaining some of them. Less so than it used to be. We have a, I, I don't mean to be cliche, but we, we have a tremendous staff when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, you know, Motor, Kyle, I don't want to go down and name everybody because I'll forget somebody, but um, they, they, they all embrace it. We've obviously recently installed Jonathan Ehrlichman as our process and analytics coach uh, on the coaching staff, and he's going to do a lot of this as well. Um, it, it used to be a bigger part of my job. I think it's critical for us that the, the coaches are the voice that the players hear because they have the whole interest of the player at heart. But again, we have a staff that, that wants as much of this as we can possibly give them, um, and probably more. And we're doing everything we can to try to get that to them. Um, so less than it used to be, but it's still there. How important is it to get players on board? And do you still find sometimes that some of them are skeptical about it? There are some guys who have just been, you know, feel their talent will get them through. And they don't, I mean, I know when I covered the Yankees, there were players who didn't even like watching video, let alone studying numbers. It's significantly less so than it has been in the past. Uh, and that may have something to do with the fact that we have a very young roster. A lot of these guys don't remember a time when this kind of stuff wasn't available. The other thing that's really helped is all of the new technology that's in place in the ballparks is just allowing us to have a better conversation. You can't go up to somebody and say, listen, you need to improve your FIP. <laughs> it's, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really come across. But you can talk to a player about improving your spin rate or improving your extension or improving your, your bat speed or, or things like that that are just much more tangible, much more actionable. It, it's, it's really moved the conversation along and allowed us to, to bring all these things together. But yeah, look, there are going to be guys five, ten years from now that are going to look at you cross-eyed if you suggest that they wouldn't want to look at this stuff. And that's just the way that baseball is going in a lot of ways, the way the world's going. This could be one of those questions where you say it's in the vault and you're not allowed to talk about it, but when and how do you begin educating minor leaguers about this stuff? Is it as, as soon as they come into the system? Is it once they get the double A, then they start, you know, how, at, at what point do you start, how young do you start? Uh, yeah, it's in the vault. We can't talk about it. Uh, <laughs> All right, of, next, question. next question. A lot of these, a lot of these guys, honestly, they know about it before before we we get to them, uh, not not get to them, but you know before before we draft them, before they come into the organization. I mean, they have trackmen in college now. Uh, they, I mean, they have trackmen at Perfect Game. They have they have this information out there. Uh, it's not limited to the professional game. In a lot of sense, some of these guys they'll they'll come from uh, from other places and and they'll say you know hey why don't you guys have X Y and Z like I I played at this. SEC school and they had this why, why don't you have it so we're we're trying to educate them all the time a lot of them come on come in here with with a lot under their belt already you mentioned TrackMan. I'll mention StatCast because that's our company uh what kind of impact have those two things had not only on front offices but just on fans and the way that that the fans watch the game at this point it's Getting to the point where it's hard to remember what things were like before you had those, uh, I think that, that Sport Vision and Trackman have, have largely achieved that. Um, Stackcast, now that it's gotten through some of the initial phases and, and gotten, you know, I, I think they would acknowledge that there were some, some bumps in the road. Now that they've gotten past those, 
again, it just allows us to have a, a tremendous conversation with our with our staff, with our players, with everybody. It allows us to ask questions that we didn't even think about asking. Um, from a fan's perspective, that's hard for me to say. I think you know we're all fans at heart, but it is difficult these days to watch the to watch the game and not turn it off. Um, to the extent that when I watch my kids' little league games, sometimes I can't turn off that part of my brain. Trying to figure out what his exit velo is. I, I want to put. A, I'm trying to talk to Trackman about putting a stack, at, a radar in in uh, in his little league field. Um, you know, they haven't gotten back to me on that one yet, but uh, but we'll see what we can do. But um, it, yeah, it's hard to turn off the, the working part of your brain. So I don't know if I can answer the part about how you watch it as a scout or I, as a as a fan. Excuse I, me. I just feel like you're hearing fans talk more about some of the terminology that was not part of a broadcast or, uh, you know, a newspaper, internet, you know, game story or whatever, five years ago even. You know, we're hearing a lot more about exit velocity. We're hearing a lot more about launch angle. We're hearing a lot more about spin rate. These things were not part of the everyday baseball fan vernacular not very long ago. And now all of a sudden it seems like more people are starting to buy in and, and uh, you know, sort of accept it as part of that vernacular. Yeah, but if you think back, I was told, because I wasn't there at the time, but I was told that one of the goals of Baseball Perspectives when they first founded was to get OPS on ESPN broadcasts. And sometime in, in 03 or 04 or something like that, I'm sure somebody will correct me, <clears throat> they popped up OPS on the broadcast. And somebody joked, they're like, well, that's it. I guess we should just <laughs> shut down. Um, I've been watching the game for a long time and I don't know that I've been paying attention to the conversations that people have been having about it for for quite as long and obviously we get a very different view about it in a front office than you would you know sitting in the stands Um, I think it is just a natural evolution of that conversation Um, but at the same time it's probably accelerating. I have no idea where it's going to go. I mean, maybe in a couple of years we're going to be talking about players' heart rates or you know, you know, something else that, that we haven't even thought of. In 2015, ESPN.com did a great analytics rankings. Uh, and you guys were ranked fourth in all of sports, second in baseball behind Houston at the time. And in the story they wrote, quote, with all due respect to Mr. Bean, the Rays were the first MLB team to go all in on analytics and reach the promised land. Do you believe the Rays were the first team to sort of really dive all in on on the analytics, even the Moneyball A's? Where, where is the promised land in this, <laughs> in this article? Right. I'm, I'm not sure that, that, uh, that, I've, that I've seen that. Um, we, we were very aggressive about it. It's such a tough question to answer because analytics isn't necessarily about quantitative information. Analytics is about a, a, a test and learn mindset, about making sure that that what you know is something that that is is provable. It's 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 scientific in a lot of ways. Um, I think that we like to install that mindset, instill that mindset in in our staff, not not just our our major league staff, in a, across two hundred and thirty plus baseball operations employees. We're trying to create an environment where people are free to fail where they're free and we don't want them to fail obviously but if if you're not failing sometimes then you're not taking enough risks so we're trying to create that environment where we're always improving and that in a lot of ways and and if you talk to our process and analytics coach down in the dugout he he's adamant that this is the the definition of analytics that that we should be looking at and in a lot of ways i agree with him so 
I don't know if I agree with the, the characterization of the article or not, but I do think that by necessity, we are creating an environment where our staff are constantly improving themselves, constantly improving the way that they're doing their jobs. And analytics, not quantitative analytics, but analytics is, is a way to do that. When you look at the teams that initially started going all in on this, Oakland, Tampa Bay, you start to sense a trend of, of these clubs. Now that the Yankees have as big of an analytics and R&D department as anybody, and there are other big market clubs, is that a bigger challenge for you guys to sort of try to figure out the next thing? Yes. All right, moving on. <laughs> in, in, in a lot of ways, that's... And we, we talked about it. We've talked about it for years, that the, the, the terrifying thing is... Is the Yankees doing this? And we know the Yankees. We know the, the the guys that they have over there. They're tremendously intelligent, and they're so disciplined. And just watching them leverage that along with the financial advantages that they have, yeah, it it'll keep you up at night. And but that's that's the great thing. That's the silver lining of of who we are. Is that we know that that's going to happen. You have to you have to get up the next day and be different than who you were yesterday because somebody's already copying who you were yesterday, and it's exhausting. But we have the benefit of being able to do this kind of stuff without the media pressure that you get in an environment like that. Um, we have the the benefit of of being able to take risks and know that our ownership has our back at every turn. Um, and if something doesn't work, we're not going to be held liable for that. So the, the continuity from the top and the, the ability to experiment and the necessity to experiment, I think, are the things that are going to continue to create an advantage. But, yeah, it's, it's gotten a lot more daunting. Another executive recently told me that as far as analytics have come and metrics have come, he still doesn't completely buy into defensive metrics. Uh, where do you stand on those? Which which ones do you maybe find more useful than than others? Our defensive metrics are perfect, and <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a, this is a tough area because this is one of the benefits of having all this new technology is that we have a lot of people who spend a lot of time developing it, checking it, making sure that it's right. They have resources that people in the public don't have, including coaches and players that they can go talk to and say, hey, here's a video of you and it says that you should have made this catch, but you didn't. What do you think? And then they explain something that you didn't consider and you go back to the drawing board and you improve the metric that way. It's an area of focus for us. I think that we have a, a system that we feel very good about, but it's also a system that I know that right now, this is the worst that we will ever feel about it because it's going to continue to get better. So it's a tough area. I think it's also one of the areas that baseball gets closest to some of the problems that other sports encounter, where you're talking about continuous action and so many variables influencing each other in innumerable ways. Baseball, the isolated batter-pitcher interaction is something that makes a statistical analysis a lot easier for us. When it comes to defense, that's where we start getting into those areas that basketball, football, soccer, every other sport has had to deal with. Has player evaluation gotten easier or more difficult with the explosion of analytics? It seems like there's a lot more information. If you have, uh, if you all have the same numbers and metrics on a couple of different players, what what helps you delineate your feelings about a player? 
It does feel like it's gotten more homogenized. The more that this information comes along, the more that it seems like there's agreement among the teams about the value of, of certain players. I, I don't know. I, I think it's definitely better. I think we have a better handle on, on who is contributing what on the field. Uh, you know, when a ball goes in play and it falls in for a hit, I think we have a better sense of how much of that was the responsibility of the, the pitcher and the pitch that he threw, how much is the responsibility of the catcher, how much is the responsibility of the hitter, the fielder, everybody. Um, and it, it used to be park factors were the big thing, and we've been able to move past a lot of that. So it's it's definitely getting more accurate, um, but it creates some challenges on the on the market side of things, obviously. Are you surprised at how important war has become to – Fans, front offices. I mean, I know it's used in arbitration hearings. It's it's become uh, you know sort of a, a metric that people fought at one point, myself included, and now it's very common to refer to it in almost any aspect. I'm not surprised. It's something that I remember dealing with in my very first days of getting into baseball analytics. Keith Woolner came up with VORP, the value over replacement player. We have a lot of people around here who will talk about their own you know four or something like that which is value <laughs> over replacement baseball executive um i'm just trying to keep mine above i want zero. those rankings <laughs> <laughs> those are definitely proprietary i think the executive access audience would love to see those <laughs> rankings um so so from that perspective i don't know that i'm surprised that war has become kind of a central part of the public discussion because it's something that I've been engrossed in for a long time since I first got into baseball analytics. That said, like your point about arbitration, there are different formulas out there for war and they are all in some ways equally correct and equally incorrect. And it's, it undercuts things a little bit when you have one metric that says that the player is worth four and one metric says he's worth one and a half. And then you've got them going into arbitration or you got, you know, going into a roster simulator or something like that. I mean, two and a half wins is, is a tremendous amount. And let me guess one side uses the one and a half number and the other side uses the four number. It's amazing how consistent that is (laughs) in the process. (laughs) See, it's like I've been in arbitration hearings my whole life. (laughs) If you ever want to come, you're more than welcome to sit there. Don't make that promise. I'll take you up on it. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm not surprised that it that it's come about. I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where we all agree on what one war is or what two war is. I mean, people can't even agree on what's a hit and what's an error. Getting to to something like that and, and concrete agreement is going to be difficult. The Rays are one of a number of teams with a multi-tiered group of decision makers. You've got Eric, you've got Hyam, yourself. There's a whole lot of people in this front office. How much does it help that the three of you in particular have worked together as long as you have when you're trying to sit down and figure things out? It's definitely a huge benefit. We all came up together. Haim and, and I started in 05 as an intern and a consultant, respectively. Uh, Eric came on board, I think, in 07 uh, as an intern. So we've all been here for 12, 13 years together. We grew up together. We all, we've all gotten married since we've been here. We all have had kids since we've been here. Our wives are friends. It, we see each other a lot. Um, it just makes for tremendous trust and tremendous communication. And that's, that's really the thing at the end of the day that, getting back to one of your previous questions, the, the trust from ownership and the trust among ourselves is critical. I, I, I know that those guys always have my back. They know that I have theirs. I think everybody else in baseball operations knows that we trust them. We trust them to do their jobs. We trust them to do it well. 
uh, and we're going to stick by them. This is not a, a front office environment where people are, are looking to climb, looking to get up on their own, looking to step on anybody to, to get up. Um, it's it that longevity I think has really led to that that level of trust. One of my favorite things that I found while researching all the stuff for this podcast in 2003, you hosted a mock winter meetings with fans on the baseball prospectus site. Um, yeah, you don't oh. even remember this, do you? <laughs> oh my god, where did you find and that? Then, uh, I'm good. And then and then you wrote a thing showing what each team did during your mock winter meetings. Uh, trades, free agents, all kinds of stuff. When you think back to that exercise and what you thought the winter meetings were like in 2003, and now that you've been to a number of them, uh, how different are the real th- is the real thing from what you envisioned it was like? Was that the one where somebody traded Mike Redmond and they actually thought they were trading Mark Redmond? I believe that's something? true. <laughs> oh, I had totally forgotten about that. Um, that was at a round table pizza in Walnut Creek. Correct. All right, my memory's still working. There okay. You go. Um, the winter meet the winter meetings are <laughs> they're different they they are way different than they used to be. They are much more business like and in a lot of ways <laughs> we're just we're trapped upstairs in a suite. It's difficult. It's not as difficult for somebody like me who isn't on television all the time. Um, but Eric, Chaim, those guys they can't they can't go down to the lobby. They're just going to get swarmed. And the main thing for us is just to resist the 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 desire, the need, the the stress of doing something. I think oh, ten years ago, a lot of teams would go there, and if they hadn't made a trade by the end of the winter meetings, then they would think that the winter meetings were a failure. Now, the only time that that was actually true was in two thousand eight. We were in Las Vegas, and Andrew told us that we couldn't actually go gamble until we had traded Edwin <laughs> Jackson because we had six starting pitchers and we needed to get something so Wednesday night we finally did the Joyce for Jackson trade we got it done we did the media and he said all right let's go and we hit the crafts tables until five in the morning but we couldn't do it until we made that trade so I don't know that we still act that way at the winter meetings even at Las Vegas this past year Um, that's that's the the main thing is is avoiding the pressure in terms of how they compare to that prospectus roundtable I mean (laughs) Obviously, instead of having 40 people, there's about 4,000. Right. Um, but, wow, I, I can't believe you dug that up. That's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a good memory. I've forgotten that one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I've read several times you said that you thought that the stats versus scouts debate was extremely overblown. Why do you say that? I mean, wasn't there a time when the quote-unquote old-school baseball people were, were fighting sort of the analytics revolution? I'm, I'm sure there were. Um, my main contention with that is that a lot of that came out of Moneyball and a lot of that is a narrative and Michael Lewis needed a protagonist and an antagonist and you're going to create straw men if you want to to sell that story and he he writes a great story and I'm not saying it's false it's definitely there's truth to it but in a setting like that I think that you kind of play up the the acrimony on both sides in my personal experience here at the Rays I maybe on very few occasions have run into out and out resistance to to this kind of to to new thinking to to change to you know wanting to constantly improve and going back to something we talked about earlier i really do think that our greatest insights have come when we've sat down and had frank conversations i i would sit down with bart braun who is one of our our scouts who's now with the phillies 
and, and we would just talk baseball. And I think I think it really moved the needle for me in terms of how I view the game. I'd like to think that I helped him out a little bit. We try to foster those communications wherever we can. We all view the game differently. You'll sit in a suite here uh, with you know 12 people watching the game. You're all watching 12 different games. The, the trick is to, to get together and talk about it and figure out where those differences are and, and why you're seeing things differently. Like, I can't watch the game the same way that Bobby Heck or Kevin Ibach or Carlos Rodriguez watches the game or Rob Metzler. Like, I, that's, I, I don't see the things they do. I like to think that I see some things that they don't, but to the extent that there is scouts versus stats, it's just not something that I've personally experienced, and that's probably where my comment about it's overblown comes from. Do you believe that intangibles are a real thing? Definitionally, they are not. Um, I think that if you if you think of intangibles as the things that we just can't measure, then obviously they exist. It, it, you'd be foolish to sit here and, and argue that you can measure everything. So as soon as you can see that you can't measure everything, then obviously intangibles have to fill that space. Um, the critical thing for us is can we use them to make decisions? Can you, can you quantify what you don't know? Can you put bounds on, on those intangibles? Like how much can an intangible possibly move, move something? You know, if you, if you have a, a, a player who just can't hit his way out of a paper bag, I don't know how much intangibles he has to have to, to, to make him valuable. Um, so, so the question for us is not whether or not they exist, but how to use them in a decision-making process properly. How about a clutch player? Boy, you are you are just you're trying to trap me, trying to get me in trouble. Um, well, it's interesting. We've seen players who have struggled in the postseason their whole career, and all of a sudden, one postseason they bust out and and hit six hundred in the playoffs. And you say, well, what changed? Right? They were not clutch all those years, and now all of a sudden they are clutch. So, do you believe there are certain guys who are just sort of set up to have more success in certain situations, not just the playoffs, but do you believe that clutch is such a thing? I'm not. I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not. Um, and I'm not trying to skirt the question. Sure. I think there are smart people arguing both sides of this. Sometimes the same smart person will be on one side of it one day, and on the other side of it maybe a little later. Um, I think one of the things that we really deal with a lot is just sample size and the narrative and the timing and you know everything that makes this game great and just. You know, you, you come up with a clutch hit one time and, and you're a clutch hitter for the rest of your life. And you are. Like, you you were a clutch hitter. I'm not trying to say that you were not clutch. Like, you did it. That's awesome. The problem is when the narrative turns into, like, that is predictive. And saying, well, he was clutch once, therefore he will be clutch for the rest of his life. But at the same time, we played against David Ortiz in this division for a decade I can't sit here and say that there's not such a thing as a clutch hitter. I mean, that guy just killed us. He killed everybody. You weren't alone. Yeah. Uh, understanding that your primary goal right now is to help the Rays win a World Series championship for the first time. When you look at your career and you look down the road, how important is it for you to have a chance to sit in a general manager's chair someday? Is that is that your ultimate goal? Do you have other goals that you think about down the line? It is. Um, it's something that I would like to try my hat at at some point. Um, it, it, it is a tremendous opportunity to shape an organization, and I get a lot of opportunity to do that here. Um, the, the main goal for me is to, to 
to try to create a culture, to try to create a, an organization that has the best chance to, to win a World Series. I love doing it from where I am, but I, I, I yeah, I think we all harbor personal ambitions, and it, it's 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 hard not to say that, that you would like to give it a shot at some point. Um, that said, again, like doesn't mean that uh, and I'm not fully committed to, to the Rays, and I know Eric and Haim know that. We have these conversations about our, our personal goals all the time. They, they do a good job of having those conversations with everybody else around here. So we're not, um, you know, it's, 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 no, it's no secret that people have personal ambitions. And I think in any other industry, you know, nobody would look twice if you said, yeah, I, I want to become a CEO of something. Um, but in baseball, in a lot of ways, it, it can almost be taboo to, to, to say that you have personal ambitions at the same time as wanting the team to succeed. And something that we struggle with, honestly, with our entire staff is as the staff continues to grow, how do, you, how do you create those lanes for talented people who are coming into this game? And they come in, they see six different you know, coordinators or two assistant directors in front of them. How, how do you create the, the opportunity for them to take on responsibility and continue to grow their own careers? It's a, it's a new challenge that we're facing just with the size of the front office that we have and the talent that we have. And you know, I think that's why we've lost quite a few people over the past few winners to other teams. Um, and that sort of has a natural way of working itself out, but it's something that we are very, very focused on here is making sure that people's personal, professional development takes place. So yeah, for me personally, like that, that's a step I would like to take. Best way to get there is just to do your job and do it really well. James Clay, Tampa Bay Rays, Vice President of Baseball Operations. Thanks very much for your time. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Many thanks to James Click for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes this season, I'll sit down with Rockies Assistant General Manager Zach Rosenthal, D-backs Assistant GM Jared Porter, Rangers Assistant GM Josh Boyd, and many more executives around the league. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand.